All right, so if you have your Bible, and hopefully you do, or someone around you does, or you have your app uh, ready, or I guess you can even use the screen, uh, we're going to be in Isaiah 46, verses 8 and 11 today. And so this morning, we're starting a little mini two-week uh, series on two really important theological truths that I feel provide some amazing comfort, security, hope, and motivation for us as believers. So today, our focus, as we can see up there, is on the absolute total sovereignty of God. And then next week, we're going to be looking at the authority and preeminence of Jesus Christ. So I think here we are. We're in this moment of, of political unrest. We're in this, still in this moment of, of global pandemic. And Wayne and I, we have this joke where uh, every time we're not sure about something, we just say, well, in three months, we'll get there, because that's what we've been hearing for the past eight months is, hey, well, in three months, we'll get there. Uh, so we have all this stuff going on. Y'all remember like a couple months ago when murder hornets were a thing? And we were worried about that. And then God was just like, they got a lot going on. Let's save you for another year. Like 2020 has been a lot. There's been pandemic. There's been these racial tensions and a thousand and one other things. And so what I think that we need to have is a high view of God's sovereignty over all of these things. Like that is what we need to hear more than anything right now. So if you're not entirely sure what I mean by the sovereignty of God, we're going to get there as we read the verses uh, in, in a little bit. But when it comes to the sovereignty of God, it kind of seems like there's this, this battle that, that believers kind of wage over the truth. For some people, it is the greatest doctrine in the world. For others, it is, it is kind of just this, this matter of controversy. So J.I. Packer, he, uh, he said that men treat God's sovereignty as a theme for controversy, but in Scripture, it is a matter for worship. See, many people, they don't like the idea of God being, well, they like the idea of God being in control of all things. They like the idea of him, him leading and, and governing the nations. Whenever something goes bad, they like to hear that, that God is in control. But then when you kind of bring it down, right, to our own personal level, that's where we kind of start to cringe a little bit. Because, because people don't necessarily like that, that, that God's sovereignty includes the littlest details of our lives. So what we read today shows us that God is not just sovereign over nature or kingdoms in the universe. He is sovereign over every little aspect of your life and my life. Now, sometimes we hear this, and it might be easy to get overwhelmed. We think that's too much. God can't have that much over me. Am I just a robot in God's hand? Now, that's fair to ask those questions and concerns. They're valid. Um, I've, I've wondered, too. But it's also possible that, that those questions and concerns have shrouded this amazing doctrine of God's sovereignty. And so I would, would answer the question of if you are a robot with a resounding no. So y'all can congratulate yourself right now. You are not robots. You can do it later. So, uh, but here's the thing. In view, with a high view of God's sovereignty, we as Christians, we are more free than any non-believer in the world. So I'm kind of getting ahead of myself of why this would be. But here's the thing, when we are saved through Jesus Christ, when we have been redeemed by him, the priority of our lives change. The things that we live for are just, is no longer what we were living for, and now our greatest priority is to see God's will done in the lives of the people around us, and not only in their lives, but also in our lives. So before you come to Christ, you are, you are enslaved to sin. You are in bondage to the, 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 the sin and evil in your life. But now that you have come to Christ... You are free to pursue Christ in your life. So God, in his sovereignty, frees us so that we can pursue a life that really 
matters. Now, Derek Thomas, he stresses the importance of God's sovereignty when he says that God is sovereign, and in his sovereignty, he displays his majestic glory. Without it, we would have no being, no salvation, and no hope. So God is sovereign, and that is one of the greatest comforts and the most important doctrines in our lives. When it comes to God's sovereignty, the Lord speaks in Isaiah 46, verses 8 and 11. Here's what he says. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient things, or ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. See, in my opinion, one of the most beautiful aspects of Scripture is that it does not leave us with any room to, to question God's sovereignty. This is, one, this is just here thing. This is one passage amongst many throughout Scripture that all point to God being all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise, totally in control over every aspect of creation. If you just read Isaiah 40 through 50, it is basically this testimonial to the sovereignty and awesomeness of the God that we serve. Some of my favorite chapters in the Bible are Isaiah 40 through 50. So when we read of God's sovereignty, we're reading about how God is totally unique from anything else that exists. So as God declares his sovereignty here in this section of Isaiah, what he's doing is he's declaring what it means to be God. So he is declaring that, that he is unique from anything else visible and invisible. God declares to the nations in verse 9, for I am God and there is no other and I am God, and there is none like me. So, here is the problem. Well, here's the question really we need to ask. Who is like the Lord our God? The answer is, of course, nobody. So when it comes to man, when it comes to me and you, we have this problem, and the problem is that you and I make very crummy gods. Like, we make horrible horrible gods. And you see, we have this tendency to view God as if he was made in our image instead of the other way around, right? So we attribute to God that which is human, and we place human limitations on an all-powerful God. But the problem with this is that God constantly, not just in Scripture, but in our lives, he just constantly def like defies all expectation, right? Like he's a God that, that just blows everything out of the way, out of the water, because he is so amazing, he's so great, and he is so powerful, and it's just, our little brains can't wrap our minds around it. Like I've heard it said that if we really want to understand God, it would be like trying to fit the ocean into one of those little tiny kid bottles of water. Like our brains just cannot handle all that the Lord is. He is utterly unique from anything else because he is above all else. A little bit later, we're going to look at Isaiah 44, but there's a small portion in verse 7 where the Lord asks the question, who is like me? Who or what could possibly compare to him? And we know that the answer is nothing. Now, I know that I am personally guilty of, of trying to, to find God in other things. Or I, I try to make God in the image that I want. Now, I love Laura and Benji to death. But here's the thing. They are both horrible gods. Like, they are horrible gods. I remember before Laura and I got married, even before we got engaged, I kept saying, if I could just get engaged, I'll have everything I need. If I can just get married, I'll have everything that I need. And uh, in, in a way, that sounds kind of cutesy, kind of romantic, pretty desperate, but really, there's a lot of harm in that thinking, right? 
There's a lot of harm in that because, in a sense, here's what I was doing. I was saying God may have everything that I need to be satisfied in him, but my satisfaction can only be complete if I get something else. You kind of see the danger in that thinking of if I say, say, God, you are perfectly able to fulfill most of my needs. Like that's a problem right there. It's a dangerous thought, but it's not a rare thought either because this is the basic thought that every man from the time of Adam has had. And this is what Paul refers to in Romans 1, 21 through 23. He says, for although, he's talking about mankind, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Every human being on the face of the earth is guilty of placing something or someone in the place where God should be. We're all guilty of that. Um, but here's the problem with that. The Lord says, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. God is totally unique from everything else in all creation. His sovereignty amongst his, several of his other attributes give him the right to be. Human beings, we make horrible gods. We either craft them in our own image, we view them in somebody else, we see that authority in ourselves, or we attempt to put God in a box and only bring him out when it's necessary. You see, I call this the... Uh, it's not the official theological term, but it's going to catch on later, I think. Uh, I call this the Build-A-Bear mentality. How many of y'all have ever been to Build-A-Bear? It's an amazing place, isn't it? I love Build-A-Bear. Uh, I'd still go, and now that I have a child, I have an excuse to. Um, so basically, if you're not familiar with how Build-A-Bear works, basically you go to this store, you pick out a stuffed bear, and you build it. And that's pretty much it. Um, but basically you go there, you, you pick out the bear that you want, now they have like dinosaurs and like Pokemon and like all these other little things, so they should call it build or whatever. And uh, you, you, you stuff it, you can pick out its clothes, you can pick out the uh, little accessories, the hats, some shoes, you can give it a name, you can even give it a backstory. You can, give it, you can actually put somebody's voice in it, and I think that's really creepy. But no one ever asked me what I think when it comes to building bears. Uh, but you can do all of these things, and you pretty much can pay what you want. Like, you can, you can have as little or as much as you want with these bears. And so, uh, really, we have, we're guilty of this mentality with the Lord. We say, God, you can be God as long as you fit into this mold that I have for you. You can be God up to this moment, or up until I have this or that. But if we're going to serve the God of Scriptures, we need to recognize his sovereignty over all things. We need to acknowledge that he stands out amongst anything else in creation, for he is God and there is no other. We want the one true God, not an imitation. So my prayer is that we would be consumed with this hunger to discover the sovereign, sovereign God of the universe. A.W. Tozer, he said, I want the presence of God himself, or I don't want anything at all to do with religion. I want all that God has, or I don't want any. So God, in his sovereignty, is 100% totally unique from anything else throughout eternity. And yet, God's uniqueness is only a small part of what it makes up his sovereignty. Let's look at verses 9 and 10 again. The Lord says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. So God has a purpose, and there is no powers in, in heaven and on earth or under the earth that is going to stand against what God has called 
for it to happen. So when I say that, that God has a purpose, that I'm not saying necessarily that he has an intentionality in, of, of being here. He certainly is intentional in all that he does, but what we are really reading here is that nothing can thwart God's plan. What God has declared from eternity past, mankind is powerless to stop. That's why with Paul we can say, if God is for us, who can be against us? If from the very beginning, before time created, God has said, I will save these people, I will set my sights on these people, then we have no reason to doubt that anything will be able to stop that plan. Because God has had his, his plan going for thousands of years, and nothing has stopped it. I love the verse where it says that, you know, the gates of hell are not going to stop the church. It's not going to stop the gospel. It's not going to stop the Lord. And so we can confidently trust the Lord. What he has declared in the past, he will carry out for us. So this is excellent news for us. If you remember when we were in Ephesians, uh, we, we went through chapter 1. And, and basically all of testi- or chapter 1 testifies to how the, the Lord's purpose is, is going to happen. He's going to fulfill all that he said. He's going to bring forth everything that he said. He's going to do everything that he said he would do. If you look at Ephesians 1, uh, 11 through 12, you see a lot, of ver- a lot of similar language here with verse 10 in Isaiah. Here's what Paul says. He says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So in eternity past, God has predestined, he's predetermined that believers will be saved according to the counsel of his will. So God made the statement that those that are his will be his. So like Paul says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So here's, here's what this means for us as Christians, okay? Here's what we're saying. It's, we're saying that regardless of what happens on Capitol Hill, regardless of who is in the White House, regardless of, of what happens even in the throne room of hell, or in my generation, or in your generation, what this means is that God will not be stopped. It's as simple as that. And so God does not have to stop at the changing of the presidency at any point and, and like rewrite his plan. All right? He wasn't, he wasn't hoping for, for one particular president or one particular governor to win, and then when he sees that they might not, he's like, ah, psh. all right, let's all gather together. Let's figure out what we're going to do. No, he, he's got this. All that God said he will do, he's going to carry out. So uh, Charles Spurgeon, he encouraged his own generation of the surety of God's uh, promise when he said, oh man, I beseech you, do not treat God's promises as if they were curiosities for a museum, but use them as everyday sources of comfort Trust the Lord whenever your time of need comes on. But it can be hard, can't it, to trust God's sovereignty, trust his purpose, when it kind of feels like life is falling apart, right? Like, 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 kind of like what I said earlier, what a year this week has been. Now here's the thing, I, I know uh, some of your stories. We even, even this morning we heard of Elizabeth's story, and it's, it's an amazing testimony to God's goodness that, that she is here today. Um, like we, we know these things that, that people are going through or we've heard things that people have gone through and we, we, we know that there's been hurt. We know that you've been pushed, that you've struggled, that you've gone through uh, things in the past. And you want to be saying, God, why are you allowing this to happen? Why is this a part of your plan? Now, even in the midst of the most difficult trials, the hardest times, we can trust the Lord that he is good, that he's going to fulfill his Purpose. I've been, been very open in the past of my own battles with, with depression and anxiety. 
And, and there were times in some of the worst battles where I found myself, you know, just questioning, God, what is the purpose in all this? Why is this happening? Why am I still here doing this? And uh, here's the thing. I found comfort, not just in the word of God, not just in his sovereignty, but through the words of a man that fought through a much harder battle than, than I have ever had to go through. One of my favorite hymns in the world is called God Moves in a Mysterious Way by William Copper. So if you don't know anything about William Copper, congratulations, you're about to get a, a history lesson. Um, when, when William was, was five years old, his mother died giving birth to his son, John. And so as anyone would expect, this had a, a, prof, a profound impact on, on all three members of the family, on dad, on, on William, and on John. And so uh, William, he, would, he was an incredibly smart kid. He was a genius man growing up. His, his literary work was amazing. But he struggled. He was bullied throughout his life. The loss of his mom made it very difficult for him to, to relate to women. Or, or that, There's just that gap in his life. And eventually, uh, by the time that he was in his early 30s, he had gone through such a bout of depression that he had already attempted suicide three times. And they put him into an insane asylum. Eventually, he becomes a Christian, and he becomes really close friends with John Newton, which many of you might remember is the man who wrote Amazing Grace. So Newton, he invites Copper to contribute to a book of hymns that he was working on that is now called The Only Hymns. So the faith that, uh, that, that William had, it did not prevent him from struggling. For years, he would rely on Newton uh, to, to basically be his biggest supporter on earth. Um, he, he would go through these, these moments where he was, was so convinced that God had destined him to hell, all because of the anxiety and depression that he was going through. Now, he had known the promises of God, but he found himself almost completely unaware at times of God's goodness and his purpose. So to go back to that hymn I mentioned earlier, I'm not sure exactly how much comfort he got as he wrote the words, but I know that, that some of these lines in this, in this song have been a great relief to me. So here, uh, here's about, I think it's the last two verses of the song that he writes. He says, Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take, the clouds that you much dread, with big, are big with mercy and will break and blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. So, we right now, we walk the path the Lord has laid before us, but the path that we are to walk has never been promised to be an easy one. Life does not become easier the moment you become a Christian. We live in a fallen world that is longing for redemption. Like, like there, the, you know, the Bible says that, that all of creation is waiting in agony, waiting for the Lord to come back. The life that we live right now, it's hard, it's short, it's bitter. But we know with certainty that the flower is far greater than the bud. The life that we have before us in eternity, the Lord or the light that the Lord promised to us will not even compare to the troubles that we have right now. For all that are his, we have great reason to hope. John MacArthur, he reminds us, he says, your trouble is temporary. God will not leave you in your distress forever. It will cease. Maybe not as soon as you'd like, but it will come to an end. Once the trial has served its purpose, you will benefit from its results and regain the joy of your heavenly Father's warm embrace. You see, if this life was all that we had to look forward to, that would be a pretty pointless existence, wouldn't it? If this was all that we had, 
we would, like, like if you started your life and you just gradually got worse, we would really question why we're here. But if there is an afterlife, if there's an eternity, if there is something that God has prepared for those who love him, then this life becomes much easier, doesn't it? We have something that we can look forward to because I, you, you will not find any person who says that once you die, nothing else happens. Everyone will say, you know, you're a ghost, you know, you might go to heaven, you might go to hell, uh, but something happens. Life does not just stop when your eternal clock hits zero. So I think something that we might forget is just how long eternity is. If we're having an eternity before us, doesn't that make the life that we go through right now seem at least manageable? J.D. Greer, he had this really good um, example of how long eternity is. And uh, he said, imagine if a bird were to pick up one grain of sand and fly that grain of sand all the way to Pluto. Now, to get to Pluto, that, it would take 26,635 years and three months for that bird to get to Pluto. So imagine he, the little birdie somehow gets to Pluto, drops off the grain of sand, then comes back. And then his job is to pick up every grain of sand that is on the Earth and take it to Pluto. By the time that he does that, that would be the first day of eternity. That's what we have before us. All that God has said, he will carry out. It's certain. We battle on this earth now, but we know that it is a battle that uh, the Lord is victorious in. Kind of like what we sang this morning. We know that the battle belongs to him. We have an eternity before us where pain will be no more. That God is going to accomplish all of his purposes. So what we read, what we have read today and throughout Scripture is that God is in control over everything. In verse 11, God says that he calls a bird of prey from the east, the man of counsel from a far country. God is sovereign over every nation, every tribe, every people group, every person, every single aspect of creation. You see, God exercised complete sovereignty over all things. Every aspect of nature, God is sovereign over. In Job 9, 7, and 8, we read that the sun rises and sets according to God's commands. And each wave in the sea, God has caused. In Job 28, we read that the wind blows from God's command, that God has measured out the waters on the earth, that, that rains happen when he decrees, and that lightning follows the course that he has laid before it. In Job 38, uh, every morning that happens, the Lord has commanded to happen. He has caused every dawn to take place. God shuts up the seas. He's hung every star in its place. God is sovereign over life. He is sovereign over death. He is sovereign over rulers, kings, powers, whatever you call it, he is sovereign over it. We read in Daniel 2.21 that God sets and removes kings from their thrones. And in Proverbs 21, that God holds the rulers in the palms of his hands. R.C. Sproul has a great quote where he reminds us that every single molecule, every single particle is is. Not, there's not a single one that is free from God's sovereignty. Remember earlier in the video, Abraham Kuyper says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. So this is good news for us. This means that, that for us that are battling uh, cancer, that are battling coronavirus, that are battling depression, anxiety, any other disease, or maybe you know a friend or a family member that's going through, through these things. We know that those things are not sovereign. The problems that you are going through right now are not sovereign over you. Death is not sovereign over all things. The universe is not sovereign over all things. Donald Trump is not sovereign over all things. And Joe Biden is not sovereign over all things. Your family, your bank account, Satan is not sovereign over these things. Vladimir Putin, the Supreme Court, none of them is sovereign over all things. The Lord Almighty is sovereign over all things, and he holds all of them in his hands. 
So what do we as the church say in response to these things? Isaiah 44, 6 through 8. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Fear, or let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Who is like the Lord our God? One of the greatest comforts that we have today as the church is that regardless of what's happening in the world today, regardless of who is in office, regardless of the affairs of man, God has not given up control. Alistair Begg, he says that when you are tempted to be buried under the weight of a secular world, remind yourself that God is still on the throne. So at the beginning of our time together, I stress that we as the church, we need to have a high view of God's sovereignty. I believe that when the church has a high view of, of the God's sovereign power, it compels us to do an, an to an unimaginable degree of devotion. David Platt, he goes as far as saying that a high view of God's sovereignty fuels death-defying missions. See, a church that understands that God is totally in control over the affairs of all people will confidently pursue those people with the gospel of Christ because they know that the gospel will not fail. They know that even if it costs them their lives, their souls are still secure in the arms of God. So church, here's our challenge for today. It sounds really simple, but it's, it's really complex in execution. Does your view of God's sovereignty make him look like God, or does it make him look like you? Does our view of the sovereign God of the universe, does, do we see him as God, as who he really is, or do we just see a slightly better version of ourselves? Because here's the thing. As long as we view God as just a slightly better or slightly bigger version of ourselves, then we are missing all of the truth that God's word testifies to. You're missing out on that spirit-driven power that comes with a high view of God's sovereignty. My prayer is that, that we would look to the sovereignty of God as one of the greatest tools in our belt, one of the greatest reminders of his light in a dark world. We know that everything else could fade away, but what is the one thing that will never fade away? We know the Lord will always be there. God will always occupy his throne. Like Francis Schaeffer said, he is there and he is not silent. He is good and he is sovereign over all things. And because he is sovereign, we can let that truth guide us in all that we do. So let's pray together. Let's pray that we can embrace this sovereignty, that we can embrace the God who is there, the one that is in control over all things. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we know that you are good, that you are, you are sitting on your throne, that you are ruling over the affairs of man. I just know that there are some people here today that, that need the reminder that, God, everything is happening according to your plan, that you have not given up your authority, that you are still seated on your throne, that you love us, and that, that you are righteous and holy. So, Lord, thank you for being that. We love you and we praise you, and it's in Jesus' name. Amen.